This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. I very much believe in optimising health span. I want to live as long as possible while doing the things I love to do, which includes being outside and being active and all of these things. I want to be there for my grandkids. Hello again and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, wouldn't it be great to be rich? No more money worries. We could give up that job that we kind of tolerate. We could take an exotic holiday, buy the clothes that we want, and wouldn't life be wonderful? Well, of course, I don't really believe that. We all know that money, or at least we should know, that money and success in business on its own doesn't necessarily bring us happiness, and it certainly doesn't bring us health and well-being, which is why the story of my guest this week is so fascinating. David Hauser is a hugely successful businessman, entrepreneur, speaker, angel, investor, best known for co-founding the Grasshopper Group. David has been starting companies since he was in high school, and uh, I think you'll agree he is a serial entrepreneur. He's certainly a serial experimenter, a self-experimenter, especially as it applies to his own health and well-being, which uh, I gather has been quite a, a challenging journey and the reason why we're talking today. David, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. So you've been creating companies, starting companies since you were a kid. Yeah. I mean, it's just what I did. Like, I, I never wanted to be anything else. Like, when I, I remember growing up and what I was going to do for school, like what I was going to do after school. And it was always like just being an entrepreneur, building things, running a business. Like, that was just what I wanted. And what was the driving force? Was it to be rich? Was it to be successful, powerful? Or did you just have that bug to create things? I think there was there was really multiple things. One was like, I just liked solving problems, right? So when I saw a problem, right away, my mind just went to like, how do I fix this? Right. And I think that's a natural interaction. I think the second piece was much less about financial success and much more about proving people wrong. Meaning when I was young, like I had a severe learning disability. I was way behind my class in reading and writing. I had to go to tutoring four days a week. Like it took a lot of work to get up to kind of average, right? Quote unquote in school. And I think part of it was just saying like, look, I can do this and I can prove people wrong and I wrong and I can be successful. And that, for me, was a much more driving force than, like, the financial gain or the money behind it. And what sort of kid were you? Were you – was it a well-rounded life? Did you play sports as well as doing all, all the geeky things with technology? I did. So in high school, I played football. I was on the varsity team. And I also spent a lot of time in the computer room, in the computer lab, right? And so it was an odd dichotomy in school for sure. Uh, but I think it was well-rounded because of my parents really pushing me to do – all of the different things that were available. And did you think, and we're going to talk a lot today about health and well-being, is it something that you thought about then? No, not at all. It just wasn't important to me, and I didn't really understand it. And the only comprehension I had was I felt overweight the whole time, right? Like, that was what I understood as health and wellness, like weight and how I felt. And I was always overweight. You were really overweight, or you just felt that you were No, overweight? I really was. Right. I mean, in high school, I was uh, 210, 220, 220. 30 pounds. And I'm six feet tall. So like that's not, but I mean, that's nowhere close to being fit <laughs> at all. 
And playing football, it's difficult, right? Like, it's not necessarily promoted being skinny when you're playing football, right? It's like how much weight can you put on and, you know, muscle as well. But still, like, there's not a – it's not – you know, some other sports that are much more active in terms of uh, leaning down. Clearly, you're very athletic. What were you doing wrong? Were you eating too much? You eating the wrong things? I think I was looking back on it, eating the wrong things, for sure eating too much. And because of this cycle of eating the wrong things, junk, not only just fast food, but high sugar foods, this continuous cycle, I was always hungry and just continued to eat. And my comprehension of good food was like, my parents always said, like, eat your vegetables, right? Like, that was all. Like, and I did eat my vegetables. Unfortunately, I also ate everything else <laughs> and none of the good things, right? And, you know, growing up in, you know, I was born in 1982. So growing up in the 80s and 90s, this was low-fat diet craze, right? Like, I remember thinking back to snack wells. Like, that was the thing. It was the margarine era, wasn't it? Oh, it was, right? And that's that's all we heard. And it's really funny because I think back to my grandparents, like they ate bacon fat on their toast, lots of salt. They lived very long, great lives, right? And we always kind of joked with them, like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? And there was something to that. So when, uh, rather, what age were you when, and clearly you were bothered by being overweight as as a kid, but when did you really think, look, I've really got to get to grips with this and do something about it? I'd say in college. So after the first year in college, gained even more weight because had access to unlimited food with no regulation um, in the cafeteria uh, and snacks and everything else. Gained more weight, I think became more self-conscious at that time and started to think like, how can I do something about that? And maybe that was the beginning of my journey, but it wasn't the beginning of my true journey where I started to dig in deep. I just said, like, what is everyone else saying we should do? And it was easy. Exercise more, eat low fat, and eat less food. I did all of those things to an extreme, right? I I never worked out besides playing sports, so I went to the gym all the time. I increased all of that to the extreme multiple years later running the Boston Marathon and doing half Ironmans and, like – I went double down and triple down on all this. And the frustration continued because I didn't lose weight. I, I bounced around, but ultimately stayed the same. Which must have really frustrated you. Oh, it was tremendous frustration. Like I can remember sitting, uh, not sitting, standing at, before an Ironman race, having you know spent tremendous expenditures of calories over a long period of time, many, many hours a week, and feeling like, wow, like there's fat hanging over the, the spandex shorts that I'm putting on. Like this this isn't right. There's something not working, right? Um, And that's when I started to really shift and look into diet much more because I had followed everything I had been told, right? I counted calories. I ate extremely low fat. I like all of those things. It didn't work. So that and uh, your experiences in the years following really all came together and is the reason why I'm introduced to you today because you've written this book, Unstoppable, Four Steps to Transform Your Life. Do exactly as David says, and you will indeed become unstoppable. So what did you do? Yeah. So what's really interesting is I applied what I learned in business to my life. And this has been a very interesting experience because again and again, what I do in business seems very different sometimes than my personal life. And I said, like, why is this happening? Right. Like so in business, we learned very quickly that A-B testing was important, continuous improvement, figuring out, creating a hypothesis and testing and figuring it out. And then in life, I wasn't doing that. I was just listening to what I was told by, quote unquote, experts. And I said, I'm going to try this differently. So how do I apply this framework? A very simple framework 
of create a hypothesis, test it, figure out what works, what doesn't work for me personally, and continue moving forward. And so at a, a practical level, I'm just trying to sort of visualize how you actually approach this because there are so many different factors. There's the exercise that you're doing. There's yeah. the, the type of exercise, the frequency, the, the level of weights that you're lifting. There's the diet side. There's the sugar. There's the carbohydrates. There's, the fat, there's all this different data that you're presumably trying to – do you have a, what, a massive spreadsheet where you're trying I did, to I experiment had, uh, with different <laughs> values and numbers? And- I did. I had lots of spreadsheets. And ultimately, the spreadsheets didn't matter that much. But my first step was starting with diet. And I said, I want the most extreme options, right? Because clearly I've done to the extreme what is supposed to be done. And I said, what are the most extreme options to me? And that's a fully plant-based vegan diet or a high-fat diet, right? Like those are the ends of the spectrum. So I tested both of them for me personally. I ate a fully plant-based vegan diet for six to eight months. Um, The first few months I felt great. I lost some weight. I then started to get a lot of fatigue and brain fog and other things that some people experience. Some people don't. Um, and, and some I, people say the opposite, that the, the brain fog never comes back after I, I know. adopting that kind of diet. And, and that's what's so important is it's very individual. And I learned that further along in my journey. But so I said, OK, like I found something like I am creating change by making this doing this. Right. Um, so I said, how do I dig deeper into this? So I did went the other extreme. I said, how, let me test a high fat diet. For me, that worked tremendously well. Um, I, I still eat today a high-fat diet. Um, I eat a lot of vegetables, so it's not the typical ketogenic diet, uh, probably a little bit higher in carbs than most people would call a ketogenic diet, but there's none of the junk I used to eat. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And you, you've been eating this high-fat diet since it became fashionable. Oh, for sure. Or since before it Before, I mean, so I, I've been eating it for three years now. Um, and I think in the mainstream media, like, we, we've started to hear about it. Now, this has been a diet that's been around for a very, very long time. And I would say in general popular culture has probably been something that people have been playing with for at least 10 years now. Right? We just haven't heard about it until the last few years. So how do you... If you look at something like heart disease, it's black and white. If you listen to the experts in this area, that and this has been the traditional argument, of course, and and now there's this kind of this gray, huge gray area as to how damaging a, a high fat diet could be to your heart health. Yeah, so I I believed it was black and white. However, I don't think it really is. Right? I think there's a, a few factors. One, all of the data that's always pointed to from a heart perspective, specifically around cholesterol um, and coronary artery disease. Right. Um, is all about epidemiological studies, right? So looking at large populations across large periods of time um, and how people respond. Now, as good as we can be, maybe there's some interesting information there. However, the important points are, one, they're not causal, right? So maybe there is a connection. Um, the, The data that we have is not the greatest data, right? So this is all food survey data. And if you ask most people what they ate last week, they have no idea, let alone what they asked last, ate last year. 
Um, there's a number of confounding factors, right? So all, when we see these headlines like low carb diets, you know, are deadly or whatever it is, uh, what it really is is they're looking at groups of people that in 1970 ate a low carb diet. Someone who ate a low carb diet, quote unquote, in 1970, smoked more, drank more, all of these other factors, because there was no concept of a low carb diet as it exists today with high quality proteins and fats, large amounts of vegetables, things like that. I'm glad you mentioned that because it, one of the things that frustrates me is when you'll see in a newspaper the latest study that suggests that whatever will increase your life by 30%. And it, just this one factor seems incredibly naive and it's frustrating to me that people are reading this and, and believing it. Yeah. I think what's really hard is like epidemiology works for certain things like smoking and cancer, right? Now, what's interesting about those is when we saw the data around smoking and cancer, the amount and the, the relationship was in the 2000% range, right? When we see this with heart disease and the data that we see today, it's like 15, 20, 30, 40%, right? Which is on the margin of error when you're looking at these types of studies. But we point to it and say, oh, it's the same. And, it, and it's not the same. Um, and the, the headlines are very misleading in both directions, right? Like I get into arguments with people that are on the quote unquote plant-based side and I eat a lot of plants and I think they're great, but in a hundred percent plant-based diet is not based in, um, reality and fact for what is best for humans. But having listen to what you've just said, you acknowledge still that we're all different and yes. that what you're doing isn't necessarily right for, for, for me or for, for many other people. So what you're suggesting in your book isn't a plan for everyone. It's more a formula to decide individually what's best for us. Yeah, I want to, I, I want to know how I feel best. How do I reduce my brain fog? How do I perform at my optimal levels? That's a very different question than what's good for the whole population. Right. And I, I do think there are ways that we can answer the question of what's better for the whole population better than we are today. Right. One, we give one recommendation, which is bad. I think we should give multiple recommendations. Here are options that are all possibly healthy and good for you. Pick one of them that you want to try or pick multiple ones. Right. Um, the other thing is w when we look at the population today, there is zero dispute that eating either a plant based diet or a high-fat, well-formulated, high-quality diet is better than the standard American diet, right? We could probably name a lot of things that are better than the standard American diet. And I think that's the key. If we can do better than that from a population pers perspective, we're doing better. On an individual perspective, it's about how you feel. And having written the book based on your decades now of experiences, how are other people expected because maybe they're not quite as obsessive as you. They might have the same problems, but they don't have that same drive that you had to, to really deep dive into the data, which is what you do, did yeah. to, to come to your conclusion. So for someone, let's say an average person who has, who's looking after the children, has two jobs, you know, we all have busy lives. Yeah. Can we repeat what you did? Yeah. So I think the key is like, you don't have to repeat what I did. Like, I went overboard in every category, right? I think the goal of the book was, a f was twofold. One, setting out this framework and saying, like, you can test. And then two, here's all of the things I did and what I learned. And what's most interesting and what I learned is it's the most simple thing. So you've eliminated a few factors for people yeah. around the edges, perhaps. But for individually, we'd still have to, we need to finesse. You still need to try stuff, right? But I think the categories are sleep, meditation and mindfulness, um, diet or fuel, 
uh, exercise and movement. Uh, and then supplementation towards the end of that. I think it's an important topic that gets missed sometimes. I want to dig into a few of those categories. Uh, just talk about your business life for a second. I sure. mentioned uh, Grasshopper Group is, is probably what you're most famous for. Yeah. Um, just for anyone who doesn't know, what do you do? Yeah, so Grasshopper was a virtual phone system for entrepreneurs. Um, I built that with a business partner of mine over 12 years. Uh, we scaled that from zero to $30 million a year in revenue. Uh, great team. Uh, great customers, and then we ultimately sold it to Citrix uh, now th- almost three years ago. Um, since then, I've also built a number of other companies. I'm involved in uh, companies that are in the health and wellness space now. Uh, so a lot of different experiences, plus I've had the opportunity to invest in almost 100 different companies and see different founders build different businesses in different industries, even with a focus in software as a service. But uh, it's been a tremendous experience to see the differences between founders, uh, and then the differences between even within our own businesses. But what you never expected to do while you're doing all of this is to write essentially what is a self-help book yeah. about health and wellness. I never expected to write any book, let alone a book like this. Um, but what, what really kept happening is people kept saying to me, David, you know, why, how did you lose weight? David, how, like, you, it seems like you're feeling great. Like, what did you do? And I kept answering the question and I'm like, wait a second, like that's not the question people really want answered. That's what they're asking. But what they're, they really want answered is how do I do this? And they, they weren't either willing or comfortable or ready to ask that question. And that's why I wrote the book, to be able to say like, this is about you and this is how you can do it. And it may differ tremendously from what I did. You mentioned a, a few of the category headings there, meditation being one of them. And it's something that crops up a lot with people I interview for this podcast, people who perhaps maybe 20 years ago, they knew nothing about meditation and were suddenly introduced to it. What to you are the benefits? So the benefits are, uh, one, for me, I focus on breathing. So when I think about meditation, it's much less about the actual thing of like, you know, do you sit there in a certain way or do you do this? It's about breathing deeply, mindfully and consciously and knowing what that means. And most of us have forgotten what a deep breath is, right? Like most of us walk around, including me, like, like sucking our stomach in and kind of standing up straight and like all these things rather than breathing deeply where we actually fill our lungs and then our stomach expands. Like to me, that's the most simple form of meditation in my mind. And that could take two seconds, 30 seconds, 30 minutes. It doesn't really matter all that much. And the data is actually clear on that, that, you know, past a few minutes, the marginal gains are not that much. Um, And so for me, I actually find a tremendous amount of meditation in my yoga practice which is in a room that's heated with loud music and lots of things going on. But it's a time that I can breathe and I can concentrate on just that. And you write a lot about yoga in the book. That's played a key, it's been a pivotal role and aspect of the change that you've made over the decades. How did you discover it? And do you you remember the sort of light bulb moment when you were doing yoga, when you suddenly realized, wow, this can be very beneficial for me? Yeah, so... If you had asked me a few years ago even, I would have said, ah, yoga, why would I do that? Like, that's not like I'm going to go to the gym or do something. I want to work out or do something manly or whatever. Uh, And I think along this journey when I was saying, like, what are the extremes I can experiment with diet? I said the same thing about exercise. I'd done the extreme on one side of Ironmans and triathlons. I, I had lifted weights for a long time. I had done all that. Like, what was the other extreme that I could try? And the yoga room was there at the gym. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to walk in and try it. And it was a scary 
proposition. Like I didn't feel like I belonged or I fit. And I just kind of like, ah, I'm just going to do this. And the first class I was like, wow, like I feel good. Like it's not the damage that I'm doing running outside for three hours. Um, I, I was actually able to kind of stop my mind even for a second in the room. And it felt like a great workout. It was heated with lots of pushups. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, maybe it's, maybe I was wrong. I went to a second class and it, I mean, that was even harder than the first class. And that just kicked off that journey of, I went from no yoga to practicing six to seven days a week and doing a 200 hour teacher training in the first six months. <laughs> yeah. And I think the key thing you've mentioned there is that lots of people say it really is a workout. You go into it with this idea that it's going to be a, a cushy hour, yeah. a heated room or stretching. whatever, stretching, lying <laughs> on your back, whatever, dreaming. You're sweating and uh, physically you can actually feel quite exhausted, but exhilarated. Is that right? At the end of it? Yeah, I think there's this feeling for me when I leave of being lighter, right? Physically and mentally lighter when you're done. And I think that's because of how a physical practice of yoga, when it's combined with breathing, works, right? Like we actually are moving our body in ways that are tremendously healthy. We're twisting in ways that when we're sitting in a chair like this, we don't do um, when we're walking around. Um, and it helps with digestion, with so many different things. And you leave that room and I think you get the piece that everyone wants today in society, which is like, I had a workout, I sweat, I increased heart rate, plus all of the other benefits that when you're running on a treadmill or doing something like that, you're not getting any of that. You're probably hurting yourself more than not. So you practice yoga several times a week, and we just talked about meditation. Do you have a meditation routine? Yeah, so I try to sit at least once a day quietly. And I, I used to time it. I used to have like trackers and all this stuff. No more. Uh, really what I do is like my goal is once a day to close my eyes and sit there. And do you use an app or you're by yourself? I'm by myself. You're by yourself. So I, I just focus on my breath, the feeling of the, you know, uh, air coming in and out of your nostrils and hitting the top of your lip and, you know, just sitting there. And sometimes it's a minute. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. Sometimes it's longer. Um, and I've, I really went away from the tracking because it became a chore it took the fun out of it. It was no longer interesting. It was like, I'm checking the box off. And I felt like that took away a lot from it. And talking of checking boxes and, and tracking things and, and inevitably involving technology, how do you, and this is a huge issue of our times, of course, and that is controlling the technology in your life, whether it's your mobile phone, whether it's the television, whatever the tech du jour is for you. Are you aware of it? Are you conscious of it as an issue, perhaps overwhelming you? How do you deal with it? Yeah, so there's some things that I've totally removed. So like I've removed all social media from my phone. I did this about two years ago. Um, it was a great change, right? And I think a lot of us sit there on the phone and just scroll through in our dead moments, right? And getting those dead moments back just to have a free thought in my mind has been tremendous, right? Like I equate it a lot to like when you're in the shower and you're thinking about things and you solve hard problems at those points, right? A lot of things that, like that have started to happen because in my free moments, I'm not scrolling through anymore. Um, and also people use it as an, just an excuse not to socialize, not yes. to make eye contact, which yeah. is a huge frustration to me. I mean, I see kids walking down the street like just looking down at their phone the entire time. It's, it's scary. Um, and... You know, so I think on the other side, like I still, you know, grapple with this problem on a regular basis. Like I have my phone next to me in bed and there's this tendency in the morning, the first thing to pick it up. Right. And I've tried putting it across the room and I've tried all of these things, but it's very hard. Right. Like it's easy to talk about. Yeah, you should definitely do it. Um, but I struggle with it. 
um, because I still am engaged with email. I'm engaged with these things on my phone. You, you actually surprised me with, with all of your other achievements that you're finding that, it's that been very thing hard. to give up difficult. Like the rest of my sleep environment is optimized. There's there's no light. There's no television. There's no computers. Um, I have a cooling pad. I have a heavy blanket. I have I, I, I've, I've optimized pillows and mattresses and everything else, right? Um, and having the phone has just been a difficult thing to get rid of. Is it switched on or off? Is it on mute? It's, it's definitely on mute. So I, I definitely don't want any distraction. But it's that mental thing knowing like I wake up at 5.30 because that's when I wake up, 6 a.m. I shouldn't pick it up first, but I do most of the time. Hmm. Do you actually think you I – and mean, I do the same, exactly the same thing and, and, and have the same ambitions for it not to be there. But yeah. I justify it because I'm a journalist and you never know what's going to happen. You might need your phone. You might need people to get in touch with you and all of these excuses, I think some of which are, are quite valid. But I wonder, does it actually do you any harm? I mean, you're, it's frustrated that it's happening, but is it actually doing you any harm? So, so I actually think it might not be doing a tremendous amount of harm if one, you acknowledge it, you know that you're doing that and you're making a conscious choice of it compared to just being addicted to it. Like, okay, like I am part of my routine is this. I don't think it's that bad. I do think there's probably some harm if you're doing it in the middle of the night, if you're especially light exposure and things like that um, right before bed. So I, I try to minimize those. But for me, like people are like, well, the first thing you should do in the morning is meditate or this or that. I don't know if that's true or not. For me, the first thing I do is I respond to emails. And so far, that routine has worked very well for me. I actually pretty much do the same thing as well. And and my justification for that is that uh, these things have to be responded to. And I like to get things out of the way and then have a bit of me time when I feel as if I've you know, got over the first hurdle of the day. Yeah. And it comes back to what we were talking about before. And that is we are all different. And it's not to say that meditation, first thing, phone, three hours later, isn't good for some people. And I think that's increasingly what a lot of people probably need to acknowledge is that we're all very, very individual. Yeah. I think the key to that that point, though, is most people go through life not even considering or thinking about that. They're just doing things or letting things happen to them, right? I think the difference is when you consciously make decisions, that's, that's when you can control things and decide this is for me or not for me. And I'm listening to my body. And if I have a headache, why do I have a headache? And those types of things, most people aren't doing that. Generally, how well do you sleep? So I, I actually sleep really well um, now. Um, I, I took me a lot of time to optimize that. I used to be a person that stayed up until two or three in the morning. Um, you know, for me, that was not healthy or good. Some people say it's good for them. I haven't seen any science that says that it makes a lot of sense that there are people that can just stay up until three in the morning and only sleep three hours. I, I think there's some limits to that. Uh, but for me, I go to bed at nine, nine thirty, uh, get up naturally without an alarm clock around five thirty, six a.m., six thirty at the latest. Try to stay on that schedule, weekends, weekdays, traveling. Um, obviously, there's some differences if you have to catch a plane or something very early in the morning. But um, you know, my my goal when I wake up is less about number of hours of sleep, although it is important. I've tracked it. I've used devices. I've done all of that. It's much more about how I feel, which is like, am I ready for the day? And I want to like absolutely yes answer. And if it's not, I want to figure out what happened. And, and minimize the days where it's not an absolute yes. And are there other sort of lifestyle traits, modern day lifestyle issues that um, you've 
got into focus and perhaps changed your behavior? And I'm thinking it was a television set in front of us in the studio. Um, all the other distractions yeah. that uh, I certainly blame for, for not having optimized my well-being or my, my health because you're kind of going with the trend or you're, you're giving in to something. It's a little bit like the, the, the dopamine, the, the phone, the yeah. attraction, that your eyes are drawn to something that they don't need to be. Yeah, I think TV and computer screens is very difficult. I really try to minimize computer screens as much as possible in the evening. Um, I mean, after dinner, like, I just try to be off the computer, period. Um, the phone's a little more difficult. Television's still on in the house. Because um, you've got children, haven't you? Yeah, we have three kids, um, which is a whole other challenge for screen time and all of the issues that come with that. Uh, we try to uh, turn off lights er- as early as possible in the house in general, like just kind of reduce light in the house. Um, no televisions or any screens in the bedrooms, especially my bedroom, uh, but the kids' bedrooms for sure. Um, I, th- I think also not eating within three hours of bedtime. Like that was a change for me because I used to eat or snack closer to bedtime. Pushing that window out has helped a number of things, including fasting and other stuff, but most importantly sleep because my body's not trying to digest food when it's sleeping. It's actually doing the work it needs to do. It's actually quite striking, isn't it? The, yeah. Once you get into that lifestyle of, of trying to eat, my nominal deadline is 6 p.m. Don't usually achieve that, but that's, <laughs> that's the, the nominal hopeful deadline. The 3 a.m. factor, the waking up, when clearly if you've had a late meal, that's what's happening. You're, you're digesting that food. If you get into that behavior, that middle of the night phase that you, I certainly used to struggle with is so much better. Yeah. Yeah, and the body is doing what it needs to do, which is rest and recovery and, you know, working on the brain and memory and all of these other things that take a lot of energy. When we actually look at the amount of energy expended during sleep, it's a lot, right? Because the body is doing a lot of work. And instead of directing that towards the gut for digestion, it's being directed to where it should be. Uh, And I think as a whole, that assists with sleep quality and sleep depth. I uh, just want to mention, we often talk on this podcast about different lifestyles. What we do is we share ideas. What we don't do is essentially give you advice. And if you're thinking about changing your exercise program, if you're thinking about changing your diet, the first and only piece of advice I would give you is to go and see your own doctor. Because as we've said many, many times, we are all different. We all face different challenges. And I think... um, that should be the first and, and probably correct course of action, and that is to see your own professional healthcare advisor before deciding to do something big and, and, and perhaps foolish. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I encourage people to dig into the real data themselves, right? Don't just listen to me say something or to the television or whatever or it is, yeah. right? Like, take it on yourself and take personal responsibility to dig into the data and say, like, is this okay with me? Am I comfortable with where the data stands today and the things I know? right? Compared to the headline or the thing I heard. Um, And that takes a little bit of time and effort. What are your goals? Do you have ambitions? Uh, We talk about longevity. We talk about health span. Do you look into the future? Do you have a a vision of David in a few decades (laughs) time, the kind of guy you want to be? Yeah, I I very much believe in optimizing health span, right? And being, I want to live as long as possible while doing the things I love to do, which includes being outside and being active and all of these things. Um, I want to be there for my grandkids and my kids are young today. So clearly thinking in the future in that way. Um, But today, what I really do more than anything is I try to optimize for happiness. 
And that was a big shift from before when in business I was optimizing for success or money or, you know, time or return on investment and things like that. Today I'm really trying to optimize for happiness and answer the question like, what makes me the most happy? What are the things around me? What can I get rid of? Uh, and for more than anything today, it's not what can I add, it's what can I get rid of uh, to make myself happy or improve happiness. And it's the same question I ask when I make an investment in a business. Like, is this going to deliver more happiness? Do I like the founder I'm talking to? Do I love the business that it's involved in? Is it doing good? Like those types of questions are very different than before. And coming back to my very first thought about money and business and happiness, was I right? Yeah. I mean, people ask me this all the time, like, what changed in your life? Like, we sold a company for a lot of money. And like, that's great, right? And that gets a headline and like, it gets interviews, right? Um, but first of all, very little change in my life, except more complexity, more problems, more issues, right? And people don't like to comfortably talk about that because it's uncomfortable. People are like, well, you should just say it's great because it seems great. But that's not the case, right? Um, and Nothing else outside of that. I live in the same house. I have the same car. All of those things are the same. So I got a lot of additional burden. Um, I lost some identity because I sold the business, like who I was, purpose, a lot of other pieces you know, emotionally. Um, and that's why I've really shifted my mindset to like, how do I become the most happy as possible? And one of our company, uh, not company, uh, our personal or family values is experiences over things. And this time of year, like I just had a conversation at home about this, like it's a hard time of year. It's Christmas and people are buying things, right? And we're trying to live that core value of experiences over things. So one of my kids is at um, Disney today um, and that's not a cheap thing to do, right? But it's an experience that she'll enjoy and love and think back on. And, and that to me is very important. And there is a lot, I think, for, for many, many people to be said for, for sheer simplicity of life. And, and obviously, as a, a serial entrepreneur, as I've described to you, and that's what you have been, um, th that isn't a simple life, is it? You, you mentioned there are lots, lots of complexities. There are lots of people you need to associate with, I imagine, on a, on a daily basis. There are issues to be dealt with. Um, but stepping back from that, which, which you clearly do with the yoga and meditation, that simplicity alongside diet, exercise, those regimes, I think is hugely valuable. I think also for me, it's routine. So a lot of things I've tried to simplify with routine. So I go to the gym, I go to the same time, the same yoga class, I get ready the same way. I wear the same black t-shirt and obviously a different physical t-shirt, but the same, you know, I have hundreds of them. Um, That's easy so, decision making. Yeah. So like I've removed a lot of that complexity in life as much as possible. So when I'm doing something else, it's because I've decided to do it. It's not that I'm wasting time doing something. Um, and that's been really great because routine, like my calendar drives my day, but I also schedule in things that I love, listening to an audiobook, um, watching a documentary, uh, writing my weekly emails, like those types of things I get joy from uh, and happiness. So they're scheduled in my day. Do you have, I mentioned ambitions for the future, a vision of the future. And we agree on health span. But do you have a, a goal in mind? I know a lot of people in the longevity, in quotes, business want to get to 100, 110, because they believe it is scientifically possible these days to get to a great age like that. I, I don't really care about age. Like, I do really want to be in my kids' lives and my grandkids' lives. Now, that obviously has some number around it, right? Um, if my youngest child is two today, you know, that means that I need to be 
you know, I'm 38 now, like, I need to be in my 60s, 70s to be heavily involved in all of their lives, right? Um, and that is clearly well within the realm of, of possibility from a scientific and a health perspective. Um, outside of that, I don't have a goal. Like, I, I really do, like, those are the things that are important to me. Like, I want to see them be happy and succeed. Mm, that's that's fascinating to me. I've asked this question many, many times of, of people sitting opposite me in a, a studio with different backgrounds, different walks of life. And it, it's striking to me how many people refer to children or grandchildren as part of that answer in terms of achieving a, a great, maybe not necessarily a lifespan, but a great health span. And that is to be around and to be involved in those children's lives and to share the wisdom that presumably you will have acquired or acquiring now with those children and future generations? I think it's really just legacy, right? Like, I think as we go through life, we kind of go through different stages. And as we get to later in life, and maybe we've had a little bit success in life, legacy becomes more important. And that's not like, how do I get my name on a building at a school or, you know, library or whatever? Like, that's not legacy that matters. It's, you know, how does your family remember you? And what are the things, not the things you gave them, but the ability for them to experience life that you gave them, right? And to, to me, that's, that's what children mean and grandchildren mean. It's true legacy. So we've got the book in front of us. Unstoppable is the, uh, the big headline at the top. Are there a, a couple of bullet points that if I wanted to be unstoppable that you would say <laughs> that I should pay uh, most attention to? Yeah, I, mean, I think one is just first breaking the, the idea of these myths that we've been told, like opening the mind up to say maybe what we've been told has been wrong. Um, and I'm not saying everything's wrong. I'm not saying none of it's wrong. But the, the idea that some of it could be wrong, I, I think, is the first step. The second step is really thinking through and saying, like, I can optimize myself. Like, I am a machine that can be optimized. And I need to use the tools that I have at my disposal to do that. And that's an optimization mindset, which I think most people don't have. And then outside of that, like, those are the other details, right? Like, I could give you a bunch of stuff like, here's what to do with sleep or whatever. Those are the details that each of us can discover one um, and aren't going to be true for everyone. So, yeah, like the headline would be easy, right? Like eat broccoli only as a diet and you'll you know, lose a million pounds, right? That would be a lot bigger headline than saying, hey, there's some hard work ahead and you need to put the time and effort into it. But it's possible and you can do it. David Hauser, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Unstoppable, Four Steps to Transform Your Life is a great read. I'll put the details into the show notes for this episode. You'll find them at Live Long and Master Aging, the website for the podcast, LamaPodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. If you go there, you'll be able to look at the back catalogue of more than 100 interviews that we've carried out so far. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or your podcasting platform of choice to see what we're up to. And you can rate and review us. And I always appreciate hearing what you could say about the podcast. However you find us, many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time.
Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.